August 1962, when François Truffaut was conducting his seminal interviews with Alfred Hitchcock, he asked the Master of Suspense whether there was, quote, a certain incompatibility between the term cinema and Britain. This might sound far-fetched, Truffaut said, but I get the feeling that there are national characteristics, among them the English countryside, the subdued way of life, the stolid routine, that are anti-dramatic in a sense. The weather itself is anti-cinematic. Even British humour, that very understatement on which so many of the good crime comedies are hinged, is somehow a deterrent to strong emotion. However valid Truffaut's claim may have been of some British filmmakers, specifically, Truffaut seems to have been taking aim at the realist tradition in British cinema. You most certainly could not apply his statement to the films of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Yes, on a superficial level, Powell was English, while his writing, directing and producing partner was Hungarian. But together, the pair stood apart from Britain's realist tradition, creating stories of fevered romanticism and obsessive imagination. What resulted was a collection of films that singularly defy almost every one of Truffaut's complaints. Whether it be The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, I Know Where I'm Going, A Canterbury Tale or Gone to Earth, there is really nothing stolid or routine about them. And yes, some of their stories, The Red Shoes, Black Narcissus, The Tales of Hoffman and O Rosalinda, were set outside of England and thus escaped its anti-cinematic weather. But rather than being a deterrent to strong emotion, their films positively drip with passion and desire. To see just how far removed their stories were from stayed realism, take a look at their 1946 masterpiece, A Matter of Life and Death. Released in America as Stairway to Heaven, the lead character argues with the angels that he must be returned to Earth so that he can be with the woman he spoke with barely minutes before Heaven's bureaucrats had him scheduled to die. Are you receiving me? Repeat, are you receiving me? Request your position. Come in Lancaster. You seem like a nice girl. I can't give you my position. Instruments gone, crew gone too. All except Bob here, my sparks. He's dead. The rest all bailed out on my orders. Time 0335. You get that? Crew bailed out 0335. Station Warrenden, Bomber Group A, G for George. Send them a signal. Got that? Station Warrenden, Bomber Group A, Apple, G, George. They'll be sorry about Bob. We all liked him. David Niven stars as Peter David Carter, a British airman who decides he stands a better chance of bailing out of his burning bomber and free-falling over the English Channel than remain with his dead crew members and crash into the sea. So he leaps. But as he tumbles down to the clouds, a clerical mishap occurs and Carter washes up very much alive on England's south coast. Where am I? Huh? This place, what's it called? The Burrows. The Burrows? Where? Lee Wood. Lee Wood? Yeah. Do you know a house called Lee Wood House? That's it. Where the smoke is, behind those trees. Is that the quickest way? There's a track from the beach. See that bike? According to Pressburger's grandson, Kevin MacDonald, the Oscar-winning director of the documentary One Day in September, inspiration for A Matter of Life and Death came to the filmmakers when Pressburger read a news report of Nicholas Alchemade, a 21-year-old rear gunner with the RAF. As the Allies prepared for the D-Day invasion, the aerial bombardment increased over Nazi-occupied Europe. And in March 1944, Alchemade and his fellow airmen flew deep into German territory, where they successfully dropped their load on Berlin. But on their way back, they were intercepted by the Luftwaffe and their Lancaster B Mark II was hit. 
with its crew members dead and the plane spiralling out of control, Alchemate saw that his parachute was of no use. So rather than burn to death, he jumped. And miraculously, he survived the 18,000 feet fall. Landing in a snowdrift, his only injury was a sprained ankle. Hello. Hello yourself. What's wrong? You're June. While contemporary British cinema may have depicted a subdued way of life, Powell and Pressburger's stories were restless and blessed with unexpected premises and unexpected turns. The life and death of Colonel Blimp covers the adventures of the eponymous British officer who seems to spend his time going from one conflict to another while simultaneously maintaining his friendship with a German officer. A Canterbury Tale adopts not only its title from Geoffrey Chaucer's poems, but also threads a similar story of pilgrimage, only this time it takes place during the war. And finally, if ever there were a British film to rubbish Truffaut's claims about the weather being anti-cinematic, I Know Where I'm Going focuses on a young woman who travels to the Hebrides where she is to marry a wealthy and much older man. But the weather there keeps them apart on remote islands and the separation prompts her to start having second thoughts. This trio of films may sound whimsical, but those very flights of fancy, where the past is reimagined and thus revitalised, or the landscape becomes a pathetic fallacy, only shows that Powell and Pressburger were anything but realists. Their films frequently straddled two worlds, real and fantastic, and in fact, given a storyline, it is perhaps only fitting that A Matter of Life and Death went into production on August 15th, 1945 the very same day that saw Japan's Emperor Hirohito sign the Declaration of Surrender, thus bringing to an end the most apocalyptic episodes in human history. In which case, Powell and Pressburger could just as easily have retitled their production A Matter of War and Peace. Not only were Powell and Pressburger's stories restless, the duo made them in an exciting manner. For a matter of life and death, it was not enough that the story be split between heaven and earth. They decided to reinforce the decision by alternating the sequences between glorious technicolour and silver-coated monochrome. But even that wasn't enough for the duo, because, unexpectedly, it is heaven that is pictured in black and white, while the events on earth unfold in the most vivid dyes. That decision came about when Powell and Pressburger were discussing their options with their newly hired cinematographer, Jack Cardiff. Intrigued as to how a particular effect would look if it were done in monochrome, Cardiff replied rather poetically, Pearly. And with that description, the directors decided then and there that heaven should be in monochrome. Here is Cardiff recalling their lengthy collaboration, one that earned him an Oscar in 1947 for Black Narcissus. Michael Powell was very brave. You, I could make a suggestion to him. I say, Michael, supposing we did this with the light and we use it very low key and did this or that, or I'd use green filters on the shadows, you know, to get the uh, mystery effect of dawn or something. He'd say, Great, do it. He would never say, Well, I don't know. Let's do another one for safety, you know. He would. He was very courageous. 
So that's perfect for a cameraman. Of course, the notion of life's battles continuing on into the next world is not that new, and can be traced in Western literature all the way back to the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. That story is so fertile that no less than three writers from the ancient world, Virgil, Ovid and Bathius, used it to explore themes of mortality as well as morality. But coming at the end of World War II, A Matter of Life and Death shares a common theme with at least three earlier American films, all made during the campaign. Here comes Mr. Jordan, Heaven Can Wait and a guy named Joe, all focused on the afterlife where the protagonists either argue their virtue or wrestle for more time. Of the trio, a guy named Joe is the most pertinent because, similar to A Matter of Life and Death, it focuses on an airman, Joe Standage, played by Spencer Tracy, who was killed on a flying mission, only to be given another mission, this time evangelic. Joe is returned to Earth to invisibly guide trainee pilots. But he encounters a dilemma when one of the rookies falls for his old girlfriend. Well, here we go. I'm against my better judgment. You can't see me or hear me, but they tell me I can get through to you. Personally, I doubt it. No, no, no. Don't hug the ground. Give me the gun. Relax. You got nothing to worry about. Remember, with all that cash, you got a lot to live for. The fourth American film that shares a common theme with a matter of life and death opens in a similar manner, with a view of the cosmos. Intercut the two movies, and you might just get a single picture called It's a Matter of a Wonderful Life and Death. Clarence! Clarence! Help me, Clarence! Get me back! Get me back! I don't care what happens to me! Get me back to my wife and kids! Help me, Clarence, please! Please! I want to live again! I want to live again! I want to live again! Please, God, let me live again. (laughs) While the premise for A Matter of Life and Death centred around the supernatural, the film's production itself was a minor miracle. America's decision to assist Britain, France and other countries resisting the Nazi onslaught came at an enormous cost to the United Kingdom. America agreed to provide military aid to Britain, but only by way of the Lend-Lease Act, sanctioned by the United States Congress on March 11, 1941. That act authorised the sale, lease, transfer and exchange of arms and supplies to, quote, any country whose defence the President deems vital to the defence of the United States. In other words, the United States would bankroll the war effort for Britain, but Britain would have to pay them back, and with interest. So great was the cost of the campaign, the US loaned $4.3 billion, with Canada adding a further $1.9 billion. But it was only on December 28, 2006, that Britain delivered its final repayment. By stealth, the United States had undermined the continuance of the British Empire. And the very notion of this development caused considerable tension across the Atlantic. That tension was not only political and economic, it drifted into film literally into theatres. By 1946, cinema attendances had reached 30 million a week, which translates as almost four-fifths of the total population going to the cinema at least once every seven days. But a lot of that box office revenue was ending up back in Hollywood. 
which is why in 1946 Clement Attlee's Labour government moved to tax the film earnings, which in turn led to a boycott by Hollywood. Which is why the film was made. It was designed to ease the friction. I've been watching you English from upstairs, your wars, your politics, your busyness, from the tax on tea in 1766 to a certain report on England by five members of the United States Senate in 1944. Financing a matter of life and death was J. Arthur Rank. A tycoon whose fortune came from the family's flour mills, Rank was also a strict Methodist who, in his own words, entered the film industry because of the Holy Spirit. His first encounter with cinema was when he began supplying film projectors for church screenings. From there, he branched into distribution and exhibition, buying up cinema chains across the country. But what Rank really wanted was a regular supply of suitable product. In other words, he wanted faith-based stories. Enter Powell and Pressburger with the script for A Matter of Life and Death. Where critics had dismissed their films as flights of fancy, Rank identified their idiosyncrasies as spiritual. And with his funding, Powell and Pressburger were able to set up their own production company, The Archers. Their association was one of the most fruitful in the history of British cinema. And under Rank's patronage, they enjoyed the creative freedom to make such distinctive films as Black Narcissus, The Red Shoes and The Tales of Hoffman. In a film chock full of memorable scenes, the most striking is undoubtedly where Peter finds himself on a staircase linking heaven and earth. When reading the script, Rank recognised it as an allusion to the biblical passage of Jacob's Ladder. But it is not the only staircase in the Archer's canon, because the very next year in Black Narcissus, there is an allusion to another staircase where a group of English nuns inhabit a convent high up in the Himalayas. And the year after that, in The Red Shoes, you see possessed ballet dancer Vicky Page racing down a flight of steps which only lead to her demise. In the hands of other filmmakers, an architectural feature as common as the staircase remains just that. But when engaged with cinematically, the construction comes to mean something significant. Just look at the ending to Peter Weir's The Truman Show, where our hero thinks he has travelled all the way across the world only to crash into the wall of a giant TV studio. And that discovery brings him to a staircase, which symbolises his sudden elevated consciousness. Or the staircase can be a space of tragic delusion, as when Billy Wilder has Norma Desmond descend the steps into insanity on Sunset Boulevard. But undoubtedly, the most famous cinematic reimagining of steps comes in Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Atemkin. There, the space is refunctioned into the very grammar of film. The staircase. How's that for a flight of fancy? <laughs> 